A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Every weekend we hear about another sports person who's injured themselves on the field of play. Oftentimes, we don't give it too much thought, but I think it's really critical we understand the impacts of these injuries and what we can do differently about minimizing that impact. Recent studies revealed that about 60% of people who tear their accruciate ligament or have a major injury to their knee make a full recovery. But less than 60% return to sport and more than 50% develop osteoarthritis. And these are young people that this is happening to. So what determines who goes on to develop osteoarthritis? And is it possible to reduce that risk? On this week's episode, we're joined by Dr. Adam Kovner to discuss this really, really important topic. So Adam is a senior research fellow and head of the anterior cruciate ligament knee injury group within the Trobe Sport and Exercise Medicine Research Centre. Hello, Adam. Welcome to the show. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. It's such an important topic, and I think it's something that all of our listeners will gain a lot from. But before we get into the main content, primarily in an effort for me to get to know you a little bit better, but also hopefully for the listeners, can you just tell everybody a little bit more about your background and what a typical day looks like? So my journey probably steps back to when I was a kid growing up in country Victoria on a sheep farm with two younger brothers. And we were very sporty, all of us throughout our childhood and adolescent years. And actually one of my brothers at the age of about 15 had a, unfortunately had a serious knee injury. He was playing cricket and um, dived to reach out to stop a ball in the in the rock hard drought ridden country ground in the summer in country Australia, he dug his knee into the ground and took a big chunk of cartilage out of the back of his kneecap. So I was really intrigued by his subsequent treatment. He saw surgeons, he saw physios and ultimately had a bit of floating cartilage removed and some of the good cartilage taken out as well, sent across to Perth, which is about three hours away and grown in harvested in a Petri dish, some more healthy cartilage, and then three months later, you know, reinserted back into the knee. And I just found that whole process of that cartilage treatment and any subsequent rehab really fascinating and really garnered my interest in sports medicine generally, knee injuries as well, and I suppose becoming a physio. So then I went on to become 
a physiotherapist and following that went on to do a PhD about eight years ago now, which focused on ACL injuries and primarily the development of early osteoarthritis in young people who have had a serious knee injury such as an ACL. And I, I've been very fortunate to have had some couple of international research fellowships where I've had stints researching over in Norway and in Austria, which has been really fundamental in, in my research training to see how other people you know, do research in different cultures. And I think really important for, for researchers and clinicians both to, to get experience of different ways of doing things in different healthcare settings. So coming back to Australia just before COVID, very fortunately, was able to receive some funding for salary support and another research fellowship from our Australian NHMRC, so our National Medical Funding Body, where I'm based at La Trobe University now, where I lead a team of multidisciplinary clinician scientists trying to work out the best ways that we can manage ACL injuries from preventing them in the first place, right through to working out why people are at risk of an ACL osteoarthritis after an ACL injury, and really trying to optimise the long-term outcomes for these people. So I've been hugely fortunate to be surrounded by many very clever and smart people that have, I feel like have just sort of helped push me along my career thus far. It's like being in the middle of a peloton, you just sort of jump on for the ride. So it's been a lot of fun. Oh, look, you're out there leading the pack. I wouldn't necessarily say you're back there in, <laughs> in the middle of the peloton. You're leading a lot of this. So just really interested because I think I hear not infrequently about early events that happen in a person's life. And here I'm particularly thinking about your brother diving into the hard rock of uh, country Victoria during the drought. Do you, did you think about, I guess, that event at the time as being interesting and or have you thought more about it being stimulating once he'd sort of matured and got through that process? Is it something you did in retrospect or you think it was really stimulating at the time? Yeah, it's a good question. I Probably more in retrospect as you think about it as you get older and mature and have the capacity to understand what you took from it back then. But I, I vividly remember that he was a very good football player, as my brothers were, and it affected him mentally very significantly because it took him away from his peer group, unable to play. He was on crutches for a good four or six months. He ended up coaching a junior team just to stay involved because he was so desperate for keeping in touch with sport and his peers. And so that really sort of made me feel lucky at the time that I wasn't inflicted by such a significant injury and have managed to luckily stay relatively injury-free throughout my younger sporting career. But I also then, as he's got older, he put on a lot of weight with inactivity and not being able to be physically active. And as a young boy, you know, eating a lot as you grow and then going to university and probably drinking too much and eating not the right things. And so I could see his knee actually flaring up and becoming worse as he's put more weight on. And so now that was sort of the process during the process of my PhD and sort of recognizing that, you know, he's in actually a really bad shape generally of his health. That's all stemmed because back because of his initial knee injury as a 14 and 15 year old. So I think there was aspects of it at the time where I was sort of as his brother looking through and taking on, on board, but certainly now looking back, you know, and I see it more regularly as I do research on these participants that it, it really affects their life, not just their knee, but general mental health and physical health moving forward if it's not dealt with. Yeah, no, it's, um, thank you for sharing that. It's obviously had a huge impact upon him, but it is, I think really just helps to emphasize the massive impact that these injuries can have. And I guess the different course that that 
path has subsequently taken him in as a consequence. So, you know, thank you so much for sharing that. Now, Adam, um, and you may well be elaborating on the the last answer that may be related to football, but potentially not. What, uh, when you're not at Latrobe, when you're not doing your day job, what do you like to do? I used to like playing football before I <laughs> retired and got too old. When you say football, just uh, what uh, what religion? It's I'm in Melbourne, so it's Australian football. So the only you know, worthwhile football code following in the world. Probably offend a lot of people on listening to your podcast with that, but we're in south southern part of Australia where the Australian football is religion. Um, and our week to week depends on whether your team wins or loses is your mental state. <laughs> I still am very keen and follow with a keen interest football um codes in general. But I as a older sort of middle age 36 or seven year old now I am I've got three girls under five at home so that keeps me fairly well occupied you know playing cubbies and scooters and dolls and realizing that if someone's hair isn't perfectly plaited in the way it should be then that can be the end of the world <laughs> pretty quickly but we try and have a really active lifestyle and I love the outdoors I run regularly for my own physical and also mental health you know it's very busy in the household and just being able to get away and have that, you know, 30 minutes to an hour listening to music or just listening to the birds, I find really important for my own mental and, and physical health. And, yeah, I try and play a little bit of tennis where I can. I love cooking um, as well, although my daughters don't allow me to be very extravagant with, with food these days. It seems to be pasta and rice and not much else. So, yeah, they're the types of things that keep me very busy outside of work. Well, it sounds like you have a wonderfully full life, and you know, if it's if it's any consolation, sometimes the culinary tastes of children evolve and mature over time, so they may broaden to in in include your cooking skills there, Adam. Now, if you had to describe yourself in five words, what would they be? I think I'm organised, and this is something that has been fed back to me from quite a young age through school as well, and it's something I've carried throughout my life, and I think. It's meant that I've probably landed in the perfect job. It, it suits my anal tendencies um, research. You need to be organised. You, you need to ensure that your science is robust and very detail-oriented. So I think that I've landed in a, in a career that really rewards organisation. So that's a, a positive, I think. I'd like to think that I'm caring and in that sense try and invest wholeheartedly in everything that I say yes to, whether that's being home you know, as the father of three kids, caring to them, but also in a work setting, taking on new students, for example, and really investing in nurturing their careers. So I try not to say yes to things and, and not give it my all and really care about what I do. Pragmatic is another term that I would sort of use to describe myself. I think my family have a history of being very unemotional, which I think is a positive and that we can deal with quite tricky situations without emotions. So I often use the saying, you know, if you're going through a tricky time, is this going to matter in 20 years? And in, in most cases, you know, probably not. Or, you know, what's the worst case scenario in this instance? And if you're happy to live, if you're able to live and, and be comfortable with the worst case scenario, then you've got nothing to worry about. You know, it's, it's okay. So I try and have those sort of mantras in the back of my mind as we worry about daily things and go through life's stresses. I try not to take myself 
too seriously and have a laugh at, at yourself. I think that's a really important, again, aspect for your mental health. I think we're all imperfect humans trying to make sense of our own world as we go through it. So being able to have a laugh along the way really helps, I think. And I think as from a, more of a work sort of context, I just love being part of a team. And I suppose from a sporting context, back to those initial stories as well, is that right from the outset, I, I've appreciated that doing things by yourself is okay at times, but but having that sense of combined ambition and combined goal to achieve something. And I just thought of it then is I was a musician when I was younger and something I really miss about that part of my life is that that combined ability in a symphony orchestra to make music that you couldn't make yourself, I think was really powerful, which I didn't appreciate at the time. But now having lost that ability to do that at school, for example, I think that sort of really stems back to the work of a team working towards the same goal. Yeah, no, you sound like you think deeply about a lot of those issues. And I guess the philosopher in you can probably console yourself in the fact that I think in many instances, that team working environment that you've probably created there as well, it's very similar to an orchestra. And so that if you remove, you know, your your string or your percussion section, you, you feel like you've uh, removed a really important component of your ability to actually get the day-to-day -day work done. That component that you were mentioning there about just being pragmatic and being quite clear about what it is that's worth worrying about. I mean, I think the adage that I tend to use there is you get involved in things that are worth doing um, and the battles that you don't necessarily need to fight, you you don't get involved in and you just let it go by. But it's it's a great, great philosophy. Now, we could probably go on like this all day, Adam, but in the interest of the... the... That's why, that's why we, we did a doctor of philosophy. That's what a PhD is, isn't it? <laughs> But in the interest of getting to the content of today, just going to start with a softball. But what is an anterior cruciate ligament or ACL and how is it usually injured and who's usually affected by that? So the ACL or anterior cruciate ligament is probably the most talked about three centimetres in the body, you know, probably apart from the brain and the genitals maybe. But I'm sure all of your listeners have heard of or know of a, a sportsman or a, a family member or someone they know who's done their ACL, as you sort of like to say. So the ACL is really a very important ligament in the knee, deep within the knee. And it's really important because it stabilizes and one of the primary stabilizers of the knee, particularly in relation to when you uh, are walking or running or jumping, it, it stops your tibia or your shin bone from moving too far forward sort of on your knee. And also it has a function in terms of stabilizing the rotation or the stability, the twisting and the turning stability of your knee. And that's why without an ACL, patients will say, oh, my knee gives way. as a primary symptom of, of that having an ACL that's not intact because it's so important for them to maintain the stability structurally of the knee. The actual structure of it, it's, it's fascinating. And I, I'm not a historian on this at all, but it has two bundles. So it's almost like a, a plait, like if you're plaiting a hair, the two bundles sort of wrap around each other, an anteromedial bundle, it's called, and a posterolateral bundle. And they each have slightly different functions in terms of how they stabilize the knee at different sort of knee flexion angles as you work your, your way through full extension into the knee bending. It's usually injured in young people who play sport, so recreational or elite sport. And these sports 
typically involve a lot of sort of jumping, pivoting, twisting type maneuvers. So contact sport and sharp twist, fast twisting landing. So they typically, they can occur in a couple of different ways. Normally they can happen either in a contact mechanism. So that means that in your sport or whatever you might be doing, someone's come across and landed on your knee or another player or person is involved and it's twisted and it's really inevitable. It's out of your control. A bit like having a broken bone because someone's landed on you and twisted your knee. Whereas the other type of injury is more of a non-contact injury. And that's when you might be on your own, you know, chasing someone on the football field or basketball court and your knee just suddenly, you know, you might twist ever so slightly and your knee suddenly gives way. And that actually makes up about two thirds of ACL injuries, those that don't involve another player. So typically it might be landing from a jump, for example, and you might land awkwardly and your knee hyperextends is one mechanism. And the other one is more around sort of a deceleration. So you're stopping yourself from running and trying to twist at the same time. So typically if, if an opposition player might be approaching you and you they sort of go to step around you and you have to stop one direction, quickly twist in the other direction. So your foot is normally planted outside your hip, so out wide, outside your base of support. And then the sort of telltale signs of rupturing your ACL is you'll hear a pop, immediate swelling, quite painful, and you're often unable to put weight through that knee and often it gets very stiff very quickly from all of that swelling. And if you are able to continue to walk or run on it, it often feels a little bit unstable or it feels like it's going to give way, essentially. So it is one of the most common injuries, but it's also very burdensome, which I think is why the focus of an ACL is so you know, common in the media. If someone does their ACL, it's a really serious injury and there's a lot of media attention about it, particularly if it's one of the better players in the team, because it does involve upwards of nine to 12 months out of sport with intense rehabilitation. So it's not just a simple injury that you get back from really quickly. And as I'm sure we'll touch on later on, it does have sort of longer term risks and consequences as well in terms of you know, the development of osteoarthritis and being a risk factor for that. And I'll also mention just in, in closing that Unfortunately, women and girls are at high risk of having an ACL injury, and we're doing a lot of work in this space here at La Trobe University trying to understand why that might be the case. And there's been an explosion, which I think is fantastic, in women and girls' participation in these traditional male-dominated sports, so such as Australian football. And I know, you know around the world, growth in soccer and basketball and more fun, as more funding comes to the grassroots level for these sports, it's fantastic. But... In the initial seasons, at least, of these new sports, we're finding that women and girls do have a, you know, anywhere between two and eight-fold higher risk of having an ACL injury, which is really unacceptable that these young girls and, and women have such high risk and put their you know, knees at such risk for the, for the rest of their lives. So I, I think women have you know, different muscle strength. Um, obviously, hormonally, they're a little bit different. We know a little bit about the changes over the menstrual cycle and whether that influences the risk, but I think there's so much more we need to understand to try and you know reduce that risk so it is is just is similar to um to the men and, and boys fascinating description i think covers that topic really well just one little point just in closing what's the peak age at which these tend to occur it's a good question it's probably but it's about between 18 and sort of 25 um yeah acl injuries can occur quite young in a developing youth you know as young as six or seven i've seen that's a really tricky 
clinical conundrum for, for surgeons and physios alike because it's a growing body with bones that aren't yet you know, fully formed and you know, going on and operating on them, which I'm sure we'll get to that later in the podcast as well, can be really quite risky in terms of you know, what graft to use to replace the ACL and that doesn't grow as, as the body grows, et cetera. But typically, you know, it's the active 18 to 25, 28-year-olds, and that's certainly who we see in our research studies come through from hospital and surgeons. Yeah, and no, I just thought, think it's really helpful to frame it because these are relatively young people and some of the consequences we'll talk about later, again, are occurring not too distant from that young age. Now, before we get into that, though, again, just in the interest of creating, I guess, a little bit of context and background, there are lots of different ways the knee can be injured with the ACL and potentially other structures. Can you just tell us a little bit about, I guess, the more common versions of this as it relates to, again, ACL, but potentially other structures that are concomitantly injured? Yeah, and I suppose I've mentioned one in, in way of sort of classifying an ACL injury, the different types is the contact and the non-contact. So about two-thirds of ACL injuries will occur without any other player involved. Another way of sort of looking at the different types of these injuries is it can be a partial rupture to the ACL or a complete rupture. Now, almost exclusively, not all the time, but very, very much more commonly is the complete rupture. So it's both bundles of the ACL will be torn. That's much more common. And then thirdly, it's around whether it's the type of structures within the knee that are also injured um, along with the ACL. So we typically would classify an ACL injury as an isolated ACL injury. So that is just when the ACL is injured by itself and no other structures within the knee, which is probably more uncommon than common. I think about a third of ACL injured patients will have an isolated ACL injury. And that I think reflects that there needs to be a lot of force to go through the knee to rupture an ACL because it is a very strong ligament. And so when you have that amount of force going through the knee, that inevitably you're going to have some other bone bruising and possibly, you know, so you have the isolated ACL injury, which is just the ACL. And then the other type of injury is more of a combined injury, which may involve a meniscus tear. So that's the tissues that sit between the femur and the tibia within the joint. And then other things like cartilage, tears because that bone and bone can sort of hit each other pretty quickly. When you do rupture the ACL, you can often get a little bit of cartilage loosening. But I think from a sort of effect on management and outcome point of view, that meniscus is really important because as we'll touch on later, if you do injure the meniscus, it's one of the primary risk factors for developing osteoarthritis if you have an ACL injury. But I also think it's important to, to frame the contact and non-contact injuries in terms of how that might affect how you respond to rehabilitation as well. And I speak to patients through our research studies all the time. And one of the most common stories or complaints they have is a fear of re-injuring their knee. And because whenever, whenever they injured their knee by themselves, running, twisting, pivoting with no other player involved, it's something they've done a thousand times before. It's so innocuous. And they're worried, how do I know it's not going to happen again, given that it wasn't someone who came and fell across me and I can try and prevent that from happening so that whole fear around will it happen again because it is a, such a lengthy rehabilitation process and often surgery involved. And so I think that is important to understand as a clinician sort of as you're educating and rehabbing these patients is addressing some of those underlying fears and, and worries that might hold people back because of how they've injured their knee initially. 
Yeah. And we'll hopefully get into some of the rehab goals and the challenges there a little bit later. But now would be a good time that you've set that platform to talk about how these ACL injuries are treated. And as you do that, I guess if you can contrast a little bit between what is typical in clinical practice at the moment and what the evidence would suggest we should be doing. I'll start with what the evidence, so what the options are essentially. So if you're someone who has your 20 year old basketballer and you've unfortunately had a knee injury, you've had an MRI and it's confirmed you've had an ACL rupture, you've really got three treatment options essentially. The first one is to have early surgery to reconstruct your ACL. Now, ACL reconstruction, it's a very common surgical procedure. It's relatively simple for surgeons who are experienced in this type of technique, but it does involve more trauma to the knee because there's a graft that needs to be taken either from the hamstring typically or from your patellic tendon at the front of the knee or from a, a cadaver or, or other specimen. And that's sort of threaded through the joint to almost replace or essentially reconstruct the native ACL that is torn. So there needs to be tunnels that are drilled and I've sat in surgery a couple of times and you know, I wonder whether they're actually glorified carpenters sometimes. I hope there's no surgeons listening to your podcast, but it is pretty messy. So that's one option is having early surgery followed by a lengthy period of rehabilitation, obviously, to get your quadriceps strength back to be able to walk, run, and return to sport ultimately. The second option is to undergo a period of rehabilitation without having surgery. So not everyone who has an ACL injury requires surgery, which I'll get on to the evidence in a minute. But you can have a rehabilitation program that lasts nine months and upwards and not undergo surgery, and people can return to sport without having an ACL with good, strong muscles surrounding the knee. And the third option is really rehabilitation, so trying a period of rehabilitation with the option of having later surgery. So you can always tell my patients that, you know, you can always have surgery, but you can't undo surgery. So a lot of patients do like to say, oh, I'll try rehabilitation, see if it works, and then we can always go down the surgical path later if they have that time. So the evidence from a couple of really well-conducted, high-quality clinical trials from Europe particularly show that when they compare early surgery to a strategy of rehabilitation alone with the option of having later surgery, two years later and five years later down the track, they follow these people up and there's really no difference in terms of the pain that these people have, the ability to get back to sport, their ability to be physically active, further surgery on their knee because of meniscus tears, for example, and even osteoarthritis. So traditionally, we thought that, no, everyone needs a reconstruction to try and prevent osteoarthritis from developing. We need to stabilise that knee. But we now know that people do just as well, even in terms of the longer-term osteoarthritis development, without having an ACL reconstruction. In Australia, what are we doing in the real world? Despite that evidence, about 90% of people who have an ACL injury will undergo a reconstruction in Australia. That's an estimate because we don't know exactly everyone in the population who has had an ACL injury. It's very difficult to find all of those people, but that's the current estimate. And the surgical rates continue to increase over time, probably because more people are injuring their ACL as more people participate in sport, which is a great thing. But I think we really need to have a look back at the emerging body of evidence from really high quality 
clinical trials, which show that for most people, they could actually do really well and be very well suited to undergoing really intensive, progressive rehabilitation without having the need for surgery. And surgery really scares a lot of people. They're very reluctant to go into surgery. It comes with risks, which rehabilitation often doesn't. And once you have surgery, there's also that risk that you re-injure your graft, your, your new ACL down the track as well. And so I like to, to frame it with my patients that let's trial a period of you know, two to three months of really good quality, intensive rehabilitation first, because some people will do really well with that treatment and get back to sport relatively quickly. But there'll be some people who continue to have continued instability, continue to have ongoing episodes of giving way. They're not able to function at the level that they want to function at. And it's those people that you know, their quality of life is affected because they can't play sport. Their knee continues to give way. They're at risk of damaging their meniscus because of that instability. And they're the ones that are really good surgical candidates sort of later on. But I like to sort of tell patients, you need to prove to me that you're unstable. You know, three months to prove to me that you're unstable before we go and have surgery. And I know having spent some time in Scandinavia, there, you know, different parts of the world are, are more advocates of that type of approach where that non-surgical uh, management strategy is sort of more at the forefront. Whereas I think in Australia and uh, I think the States, the US as well, where perhaps our healthcare systems are more financially driven with, you know, surgeons being compensated financially for the number of surgeries they do, obviously that that can influence the outcomes and the clinical pathways that these patients optimally pursue. And I think um, I've written a couple of editorials that have been published that are being quite provocative, actually, it's saying that, you know, the secret for these ACL injured patients really lies within an intensive and good quality rehabilitation program and not all of these sexy, you know, surgical techniques that a lot of people spend a lot of money on trying to work out which graph to take, you know, what type of surgical technique to use. But I think the growing body of evidence suggests it really doesn't matter what surgical technique you use. It's the gold standard, good quality, intensive, progressive rehabilitation program that is absolutely fundamental for getting these knees back as good as they can be. Wonderful. Now, Adam, just I guess just to quickly sum, so the evidence would suggest that the preferential evidence-based treatment should be rehabilitation followed by delayed surgery for those who demonstrate ongoing instability. Clinical practice at the moment, the overwhelming majority of people have reconstructions of their ligaments surgically. You alluded to the fact that you think the main driver here is the surgeons getting remunerated for that practice. Is that is that the major reason you think between the evidence practice gap? Are there other are there other factors involved? Yeah, I'm probably being a bit harsh on my surgeon colleagues. There are, and we're actually just about to commence a project looking at these types of factors. So what are the enablers and barriers for people to pursue, you know, rehabilitation alone without surgery? I think in Australia particularly, I'm not sure about the rest of the world, but there's a big strong focus in the media, for example, that evade this sense of reporting on elite athletes with an ACL injury, that they're a strong you know, indication that you know, they've had a reconstruction. So they therefore, you know, that's the only treatment or the best treatment for these elite athletes. So at the community level, often you hear people say, well, I, I want the treatment that my idol who is on TV had the same injury. I obviously need to have that same treatment because my knee is just as important. And so I think 
we're starting to understand a little bit about the community beliefs and perceptions around and where they've come from, whether it's from teammates at sport or, or school or family or indeed the media, that I think the, the perception pervades society that you need a reconstruction that is very challenging to alter communities' beliefs and understanding, which I think is you know part of our long-term aim in this space. But that, so there's a multitude of factors that that lead into this, and also you know clinical care pathways. Often, if you do have that primary contact with your general practice, you know your GP doctor, and they order an MRI and see an ACL injury, often you know if they're not on top of the literature, then they might just send you straight to a surgeon, and then so you don't know that there are other options. And so, of course, you're going to listen to the surgeon because they're you know an authoritarian figure and they know what they're talking about, and you go and have surgery. And so we've had some of our research participants who are you know, not doing so well two or three years down the track, and we asked them, if you had your time again, would you go through the surgery again? And often they do say no, knowing what they know now, years down the track, but they just weren't presented with that as an option. Yeah, and no, really, really important to get that messaging right and hopefully change some of the misperception out there that's in the community. Now, for these injuries, why do they matter? What are, what are the consequences of tearing your ACL when does that when do those consequences tend to happen I suppose initially it's you can't play sport for a period of time and that can be as I said with my my brother that can be really mentally challenging as well as not being active and you know the, the risk of putting on weight etc and it becomes a bit of a vicious cycle and that's an obviously in the short term you know, there's a period of time where you're on the sidelines and you're really isolated in terms of going through a rehabilitation program you know, it's often boring you're doing the same strength exercises in the gym and that's I think a real skill of a physiotherapist or a rehabilitation specialist is to make it really interesting and and I say to patients hey, let's get your knee bigger and better than it was before you injured it initially because you injured it because you know maybe you weren't strong enough so let's actually take the opportunity to to get it bigger and better and I, and I think work on performance aspects during that rehabilitation period and for a young sports person I can see that they the time maybe focused on also improving their performance when they can get back to sport is really valuable. So nine to 12 months is a typical time period until someone can return to that high level sort of impact pivoting, twisting type sports. But unfortunately for about 50% of people, they aren't able to get back to their same competitive sport level. And they often complain that it's because of their knee. Sometimes it's life and they've got kids and they change jobs and they don't want to play sport anymore and that's fine. But often it is because of their knee. And we know that about one in three people report ongoing pain and symptoms in their knee, you know, up to five or six years after their ACL reconstruction. So it's certainly not a self-limiting condition that sort of you have a reconstruction, you do a bit of rehab and it gets back to a normal knee. Unfortunately, once you have an ACL injury, it's probably not ever going to be a normal knee Again, the biomechanics change ever so slightly, even with a reconstruction. It's never that 100% that native knee that you had, that you were given when you were born, unfortunately. But more sort of longer term, beyond the sort of inability for some people to return to sport and physical activity, the big one, obviously the elephant in the room, is the development of osteoarthritis. Ongoing symptoms that come with that. And I, from a research perspective, it's really challenging to work out you know, what are the where's the transition from painful following your injury to then when the pain develops or starts because of the osteoarthritis in your knee. And we're doing some work in that space at the moment as well. But we know that about 50% of people within five to 10 years following their ACL injury, 
irrespective of whether you have a reconstruction or a rehabilitation only, will ultimately develop osteoarthritis in their ACL injured knee. And this is much higher rate compared to their other knee, for example, that hasn't had an ACL injury or other type of injury, and much higher than their uninjured peers, their teammates who have played the same sport for a number of years but haven't had an ACL injury. So this can be quite debilitating for patients. And your point earlier around highlighting that these are 25 and 30-year-olds who are often having these ACL injuries. So they're in their 30s and 40s when they're developing osteoarthritis and developing these symptoms. So it's often the peak time of their employment, peak time of their careers from a professional point of view. They're often having kids, so caring responsibilities, ability to play with your kids is at the forefront of of that life stage as well. And as we know, as I'm sure many of your guests on the podcast have, have described and discussed, is that there's no cure for osteoarthritis once we have it at the moment. And so it's really about how do we manage the long-term health of this knee, which we should be doing during the initial stages of rehabilitation, which we'll probably get to. But it's appreciating that your knee is at risk and doing everything we can to try and improve or optimise the health of that knee longer term. We also know that, unfortunately, there's a, probably a fourfold high risk of having a knee replacement when you're, you know, before you're 60 if you have an ACL injury. So there's sort of the facts and figures which which I think when talking to patients about it's a real challenge because you don't want to create all this fear and worry about something that might happen in the future because 50%, 60% will actually be okay and not develop arthritis too quickly. So they might not be in that group. But I think it's also important to give a realistic you know, understanding of and a motivation for them to do their rehab because as we'll talk about in a minute, I'm sure there are some things we can do during rehabilitation, which we hope can help reduce that risk as well in the long term. Yeah, so fantastic and a great exposition of the the impact that these injuries can have both immediate and longer term. So when we're talking about osteoarthritis, what are some of the reasons that put a person at higher risk of development of osteoarthritis following that joint injury? The main one, as I sort of mentioned earlier, is if you have a combined injury with the meniscus. So that's really the primary driver of osteoarthritis after an ACL injury, if you also have a meniscus tear or have the surgeon take out or clean up your knee for one of a sort of colloquial term and and remove some of that meniscus. And I think that's very well well appreciated throughout the orthopedic sort of sports medicine world at the moment. And, And surgeons will do anything they can to try and preserve as much of the meniscus as possible, realizing that the more you take out, the more your risk of osteoarthritis increases in the long term. So that's the most potent risk factor. And unfortunately, we as physios can't really do much about that because it often comes from the time of the injury with the forces that go across the knee. The surgeons can try and repair part of the meniscus rather than chopping it out. Um, But it's not something that we can ultimately intervene on as from a rehabilitation perspective. But there are a couple of really important other sort of risk factors that we need to know about that we can modify that may lessen our chances of developing osteoarthritis in the future. And one of those is getting good, strong muscles around the knee. So there's quite a bit of research. We've done a couple of recent systematic reviews showing that quadriceps weakness, so that's the muscle at the front of your thigh, quadriceps weakness is one of the an important risk factor 
for the development of osteoarthritis. So this is in the general population, including sort of older adults who maybe have osteoarthritis, not due to a knee injury, but also in young people with a knee injury. So good, strong quadriceps muscles reduces your risk of developing osteoarthritis. And if you already have osteoarthritis, it reduces your risk of progression to further sort of more severe symptoms and disease. And we've also we've had a PhD student just publish a systematic review looking at whether functional performance tests, so these are things like hop tests that we often use during rehabilitation of ACL injured patients, so how far can you hop on one leg and your balance when you land. But if you're unable to perform very well compared to your other uninjured knee, that this can actually put you at risk of future osteoarthritis as well. And it probably comes back to that sort of muscle control and, and having strong muscles because that obviously is important in those hop sort of functional type tests as well. So we also thankfully have published some other data showing that a return to sport. So often people come to us and say, you know, when can I return to sport? And if I return to sport, is that going to increase my risk of getting arthritis? And thankfully we have shown that that's not the case. So we can be telling our patients that yes, you can get back to sport and be active and live a healthy life and you won't be increasing your risk of osteoarthritis. So on a sort of side note to that, similar to people who haven't had a knee injury, but if you have had an injury, if you are overweight or obese, that is one of the important risk factors that increases the risk after an ACL injury of developing osteoarthritis as well. So the old message of keeping active, eating well and keeping weight off or reducing weight if you're overweight, you know, are absolutely core tenants here as well. And I think, you know, you had Fiona on a podcast recently and she spoke about some of her, you know, inflammation and blood type markers, you know, within the joint. And, and certainly that's outside my area of expertise as a physio, but there are certainly sort of some sequelae or natural phenomenon from the joint um, injury itself that can soften the cartilage and put the knee at risk sort of longer term as well. And obviously how, how our biomechanics change ever so slightly can put load onto cartilage in the knee that's not accustomed to that load, which can, you know, change the way our knee moves, which can put certain parts of it at risk as well. Yeah, no, wonder, wonderful. And presumably the extension of that really is that, you know, if you want to reduce your osteoarthritis risk following the injury to maintain good strength, to keep your weight down um, and take advice about physical activity and, and return to sport. Just on the return to sport question, Adam, it's obviously great that they can get back to sport. Any advice that you give to people about the timing of that return? It varies. But there are, is some evidence, uh, I suppose the main risk, sort of taking a back step, the main risk of returning to sport you know, too early is the fact that you might re-injure your knee. If you don't have the strength around your knee to, to maintain the ability to jump, land, twist, pivot, then that's going to put your knee at risk of re-injuring and then you've done a second ACL and you go and have a revision, another graft. You know, that's what we certainly don't want to happen. So historically it's been all about time so we use time criteria so you need to wait until, you know, nine months or 12 months and then you're able to get back to sport but now nowadays it's more around a functional sort of criteria so you have to tick off certain return to sport criteria to be able to safely return to sport we can never prevent every single re-injury that's going to happen but this is shown to be able to reduce that risk of re-injuring your knee so there are things like being able to hop in different directions, you know, at least 90% compared to your uninjured side. Having quadriceps strength of at least 90% compared to your other side. 
being able to train unhindered, you know, relatively comfortably before going back to match practice and, and then ultimately full competitive sport. So certainly those sort of return to sport battery of tests are well established in literature and something that patients should absolutely be be passing before they go back to sport. But it also sort of go back to your, your initial point on that is that we trying to modify these risk factors, we actually have very little evidence to suggest if we get quadriceps muscles stronger and if we reduce weight, whether that actually changes someone's risk and is able to prevent or reduce the risk of osteoarthritis. Hypothetically, because they are risk factors, absolutely. But we actually have almost no clinical trial evidence. So actually trying to, when we change these risk factors, does that actually have an impact on osteoarthritis risk? And that's sort of a, a segue into a really nice study that we're doing here at La Trobe, which is trying to answer that exact question where we're strengthening quadriceps muscles. We're getting their function back as best we can. We're getting them active and losing weight. And we're tracking whether these people using MRI scans, like how their cartilage changes over time to ultimately try and say, yes, if we change these things, we reduce their risk and prevent or reduce the risk of osteoarthritis moving forward. Sorry, what was the name of that study? Super knee. Super knee. Fantastic. Now, Adam, I haven't managed time particularly well. So the next thing I was going to ask you, because obviously we've been speaking about people who've injured their knees, was about primary prevention of injuries themselves and some of the neuromuscular training that might be undertaken. But I think for people who want to listen a little bit more, please go back and take a listen to either Tim Hewitt or, or Jackie Whitaker's podcast. But Adam, were there any closing comments you wanted to make about ACL injuries per se? The take-home message is patients with an ACL injury just need to be educated and empowered to make an informed choice for their management, knowing all of the risks and benefits for each of the, the big sort of large treatment options that we've talked about today. And we know that you know, there's not a lot of difference in these treatment options. So there's not everyone needs to have surgery. So I think actually for patients to know that can give them a lot of power to take control of their own destiny here. And and I think educating them about their, the risk of long-term health can be very motivating for patients to continue with their rehab because it is a long and arduous journey that can be quite boring and you know, on the sidelines doing your, your exercises, watching all of your friends out on the field. So reassessing all of these important factors like quadriceps strength and hop tests throughout the process can be very motivating as they receive feedback along the way. Wonderful. Now, are there any online resources that would be helpful for the community at large that you'd like to point people towards? Good question. We Research Centre has a blog, which I can share with you, which has a lot of open access, sort of freely available resources on this topic. We have a, an ACL clinical symposium, which is going to be online, run on the 3rd of March this year. So I can put a link to that in the show notes for you as well, if you like, which is going to be all about non-operative management and how we can try and improve people's ability to have a good outcome and maybe even try and heal the ACL with a novel bracing protocol that is being investigated up in Sydney. So, and the other the other one is our OptiKnee consensus statement. So I've co-led with Jackie Whitaker, a group of 38 sort of scientists and clinicians from around the world who have put together these really fantastic set of resources from bringing all the evidence together that has been published and then coming up with some recommendations for clinicians, for surgeons, for patients about what we can all do to reduce the risk of osteoarthritis after a traumatic knee injury, not just an ACL, but any sort of traumatic injury, thinking about that long-term 
outcome and keeping your knee healthy as long as possible. So I can absolutely share those with you as well. That's OptiKnee. Wonderful. So we'll include a link for those resources in, in the show notes. But just, I guess, a couple of questions just in closing. How do you motivate yourself? What uh, what stimulates you to do what you do? I think working with very smart people. <laughs> Again, coming back to that sort of being part of a team and being in the peloton, it's just really easy to continue to learn. And I find that I'm learning every day just from talking to people in the corridor and having an open door policy and, and being surrounded by people who continue to drive you to uncover new and exciting information. I think that's a really unique position we find ourselves in as researchers that is never lost on me, that we are paid to do a job, which is asking questions and then designing studies to ultimately answer those questions. And so when we're actually coming up with those questions initially, that can be really empowering and to be able to be funded to do this work is a real privilege, I think, and something that I, yeah, as I said, is, is not lost on me. So I think that's something that continues to drive me to to learn new things, become a better researcher, to keep helping people in the community, you know, who are at risk of injury, who are at risk of osteoarthritis, and being able to translate all of that, you know, best work that we're doing out to improve the lives of people in the real world. Well, I hope you continue to do what you're doing and making a big difference for the lives of so many people who are out there. But before you depart, is there any one piece of advice, knowledge or wisdom that you'd like to give for the people who are out there listening? I think for people with osteoarthritis, and I know this is the broad topic of your podcast, is that, and this comes also back to the ACL, is that we rely a lot on imaging to diagnose osteoarthritis and ACL injuries. But in reality, we sh probably shouldn't be relying on what we're seeing on imaging because it doesn't necessarily drive our treatment decisions. So it's important part of it. But I think more and more research shows that if we have an, an MRI or an X-ray of your knee, for example, and we find some sort of damage or issue in the knee, that can be very anxiety-provoking and worrying. And often people want a label and diagnosis and go off and get it treated when in reality, we know that a lot of these things can be seen on imaging in totally asymptomatic, so they're not painful, uninjured knees. It's just a normal part of life. We have different bits and pieces that occasionally go a bit awry. So I think, you know, also from an ACL, sometimes it doesn't matter if it's ruptured. You can create a really good, strong knee with your muscle function, and it doesn't matter if your ACL on an imaging isn't 100%. And I know that that's the same with osteoarthritis and a little bit of cartilage damage or a meniscus tear. You know, we can do a lot of things really well by avoiding a lot of that imaging and overdiagnosis. Yeah, it's very hard to unsee that image. And it's much more important to the people who are out there what they feel and how it functions rather than necessarily what uh, they're told it shows on an anatomic image. Now, Adam, thank you so much for spending some time with us, the really important insights that you've shared and the massive contributions you continue to make. It's a great privilege for me to have a chance to have a chat to you. Oh, it's been great. Thanks, David. I really enjoyed it. My pleasure. These injuries are incredibly common and appear to be coming increasingly so. The current evidence would suggest most people do well with some rehabilitation, potentially followed by surgery in those with ongoing instability. But our clinical practice does not reflect that. There are lots of ways we can determine who's at greater risk, in particular, those who have weaker quadriceps, who are more inactive or potentially have a higher body weight. 
but in general, not a lot is being done to optimize knees following anterior cruciate ligament injury. And obviously we can't go too much further without re-emphasizing the paramount importance of primary prevention in this space. If we can prevent all of these from happening, which we can in most instances with well-done prevention programs, we should. But unfortunately, there's a huge missed public health opportunity in this space, which we really should get underway and tackle. So again, I'm hoping you found the content of today really helpful. Again, appreciation to Adam for sharing those insights and his knowledge with us about this really, really important topic. Thank you so much for sharing your listening time with us and lending us your ears and really looking forward to, again, sharing some time with you again in the very near future. But between now and then, please do take care of yourself and if you get the opportunity, someone else as well. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, visit www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.